0: Well, good morning. Let me first say, uh, man, I'm really thankful for Graham uh, for being our pastor. I mean, he allowed me to speak. I can't. It's a miracle. Uh, but, you know, this guy is so committed to, to teaching the word of God to us. And that's so important because I don't know if you know this or not, but not every church does this. They should, right? Right. But Graham is so uh, committed to that and establishing uh, us on a really firm foundation so that we can live our lives on a mission for God. And that mission is not going to fail. And so thank you, Graham, for for doing that. Um, Also, Happy Father's Day to you. Uh, Well, speaking of missions that won't fail, it's Missions Month. And we have been hearing for the last couple of weeks, if you've been with us, from a couple uh, missionaries. We have our own—he's not here today, but Brent, uh, our missionary in residence— And uh, we heard about his trip to Nigeria and what God is doing there. And also we heard from Josiah Yingling uh, last week. And man, what an awesome young man who's going to go to Nepal, a country of 28 million people where hardly anyone has heard the name of Jesus. That's an awesome thing. And so I kind of want to just pick up where they left off and and just kind of carry on and give us a framework for answering the question, why missions? What is it all about? Why are we doing it? Why do we have a whole month set aside for missions? And, uh, you know, if you were here with Brent, uh, I don't know if he, he's not here, so I can't call him out on this, but um, I don't know if he stole my notes or what, but um, he, he shared my four points, and so be, because I couldn't let him outdo me, I had to add a fifth point. So um, we have, I'm going to tell you my first four points for those note takers in here, um, and then I'm going to add a fifth at the end, just a short one, but a really important one at the very end. And they are knowing... Praying, giving, and going. And then I'll, I'll, I'll keep the last one a secret, all right? Well, John Piper wrote an amazing book called Let the Nations Be Glad. And in this book, he starts off, he hits a home run from the very beginning, and he says, missions exist because worship doesn't. Missions exist because worship doesn't. You see, worship is the ultimate goal for us. It's the ultimate goal. In our lives, that's what we aim for. And so missions exist as a temporary necessity, he says, because worship doesn't. And there are some who are so passionate, so passionate about people worshiping God. I mean, you think about it, people, I I know somebody literally, I mean, this isn't just a storybook thing, I literally know somebody who has sold everything they had and left to go on the mission field. And people ask people for money. Anybody out there been on a mission trip and had to do that awkward thing? Who does that? Who asks people for money? Well, people who are passionate about missions do that. And they leave their hometown and they leave mom and dad. And they go to a place where people don't look like them and people don't talk like them. And they, their culture is totally different. So that they would call those people to worship God. And I'll tell you, I think of Jim Wilson. Now, I've met this guy a couple times, and what an awesome guy he is. He, he, he's the, he started Fellowship Bible Church here in Jacksonville, and he's in Costa Rica passionately training leaders to reach their people with the gospel, to call their people into the worship of God. He's not on the beach sipping on pina coladas, okay? And think of Brent, again, Brent Hale. I mean, it's like every time I talk to this guy, he's either just getting back from a trip, right? Or he's planning his next trip. Those are the two, the two phases, the two stages of Brent Hale's life. I mean, there's, they're so passionate about this. And yet there's even another guy that I know who's even more passionate. Sorry, Brent. Sorry, Jim. Sorry for those of you that have gone on a trip. But there's a, there's a person that I know who is so much more passionate about people worshiping God. And that guy is God himself. God Himself is so passionate and so jealous for people to worship Him. That He would go to such great extremes. Now, on and on and on through the Bible, literally from Genesis to Revelation, you see God being so jealous and so passionate that people would worship him. And I could I could list verse after verse, I really could. But we're gonna narrow it down, we're gonna read a small passage in Isaiah forty-eight. Now, if you're if you have your Bibles, we're going to be all over the place today. So I'm going to I'm going to test how fast you can get to these these scriptures. All right, but if you if you feel a little, uh, you know, if you don't have your Bible or whatever, we have them up here on the on the screen. Now, listen to this verse. <clears throat> For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise. Sorry. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake. That's not a misprint. I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Wow. God is jealous and passionate that each and every person that He has created would worship Him. This is why missions exist. This is the foundation from which we do all of this missions work as a body. And so it is out of this overflow of God's heart for glory that He gives to us, His people, the promises of missions. Like the one found in Matthew 24, 14. It says, This gospel shall be preached in all the world, and then the end will come. Listen to that. It's a promise. It's not, he's not just stating something that's a, a, a good saying. This is a promise from God. That this gospel will be preached in all the world. And then the end will come. And what I love about the Great Commission, about the call of God to go and preach, about sending teams, about leaving home and calling the nations into worship, it's that it's backed with promises from a God who has never, and He will never, fail. And we know he won't fail because his own glory, which he's so passionate about, is at stake. If the mission of the church fails, God fails. And God will not let that happen. And so, how exactly does this mission of the church work? How does it happen? Well, for you note-takers, my second point is praying. A few weeks ago, we celebrated Memorial Day, and it's a, it's a, it's a, I think it's one of the more overlooked um, holidays. I remember watching a little video of somebody who was surveying people about Memorial Day, and so little, so, so few people knew what Memorial Day was all about. But on Memorial Day, we remember those who died giving their lives in service for our country. They fought wars for us. But did you know that you're in a war right now? In fact, life is war. All of life from beginning to end is war. Paul puts it like this in Romans chapter 5. He says that we are enemies of God. Now, when I teach at Father's Love, I, I teach kids at Father's Love, and it's a youth center. And and you know, I teach kids from from it's supposed to be ten, but eight-year-olds even sneak in. But we have 10-year-olds all the way up to 19, 20, and now I teach older young adults, too, and, and uh, older young adults, you know, young adults. And, you know, when I, when I teach them, this is one thing that's really difficult for me to kind of get across to them, is that they're enemies of God without Christ. It's, it's hard because they know who their enemies are. They just got into a fight with them, right? But with God, they're like, I don't have any beef with God. God's cool, But they don't realize the depth of their sinfulness. They don't realize how self-centered and selfish their hearts are from the time they are born. The, The Word of God is true. We are enemies of God before Christ comes into our lives. The same is true not just for those kids, but for us. Anyone in here who doesn't know Jesus, and not just knowing some facts about Jesus... Not just believing the facts are even true about Jesus. But really, there's a work that God has to do in our lives. The Bible calls it regeneration, but it's just some some awesome work, the spiritual work that only God can do to take out our old heart and give us a new heart. And if He doesn't do that, you may not have any beef with God, but the Bible says you're an enemy of God. And that's difficult to, to realize. It's difficult to believe sometimes. But there's this rumor that's going around that says when you become a Christian that all fighting stops. And that is a rumor, let me just say. But it's a rumor, you know, and and all all good rumors, it's partially true, right? When you become a Christian, like a real believer, your war with God ends. God wins, right? And you become a friend of God No longer an enemy. But not all wars end when you become a Christian. You see, as a believer, we enter into another war that will last the rest of our lives. And this time, instead of fighting against people, instead of fighting against God, and instead of fighting against people trying to get what we can get, the war that we fight as believers, we need to fight on our knees. That is the weapon of our warfare. Is prayer. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12. For we do not fight. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. You see, prayer, prayer is the way that God gives to us everything you need to accomplish the mission. Prayer is it. He has given us a way to communicate with the commander in chief so that he can give us all the supplies, everything we need to accomplish the mission. And it's not just me, by the way, that's equating life with war and struggle and prayer. You read Scripture over and over again. Listen, 1 Timothy 6, Luke 13, Hebrews 4, 1 Corinthians 9, Colossians 1, Colossians 4, Romans 15. I could go on. There's this idea that life is not supposed to be some easy, fun, fluffy place, but it's war and prayer is always a part of it. Always. But you see, our enemy likes to stroke the the chords of our hearts, use our selfishness, use our self-centeredness to sing a little lullaby so that we would fall asleep. That was a fake one. That we would fall asleep when in our hands is the tool, the only tool that we really need to accomplish this mission. And unfortunately, even when we do use this tool, we can tend to use it for selfish reasons, can't we? And we make God out to be not the commander-in-chief that he is, but more like a butler to go and get the little things that we need to make our lives easy and comfortable and fun and fluffy. I like that word, fluffy. You know, one of the things that we want for the kids at Father's Love is for them to, to pray and to love to pray. And so, uh, you know, for, for years, I've been like sinning by telling them the wrong thing. Can't believe it. And I would say, when I try to encourage them, I'd say, you know, prayer is so easy. It's like talking to your mom. It, there's really no wrong way to pray. And then I read the Bible. And in James... Chapter 4. It's a super, I mean, so many people know this verse. And when I've heard this verse, the, every time I've heard it, it's been used out of context. And, they, and they, don't over, they don't ever quote the whole verse. And then they certainly don't quote the next verse. It says, you, don't, you do not have because you do not ask. Oh, man, I wish I had a bigger truck. Well, I wish I had a truck. <laughs> oh, have you prayed about it, brother? You don't have because you don't ask, the Bible says. As if God is just some butler waiting for you to ask him for an Xbox or, or some big toy that you could have. Xbox, sorry. This, I'm used to te- speaking to kids. So, <laughs> Anybody you want an Xbox? I don't know. <laughs> all right, all right. It says, you do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions you adulterous people. You adulterous people. Listen. And in fact, I'm not a Greek student anymore, but that adulterous people is not, that's not what it actually says. It says, you adulteresses. You're married to God and you're using him. Man, James gets downright mean. That's that's heavy. And it's serious. And so often I've been guilty of praying selfish prayers so that I could spend it on my own passions. Not using it to fight. God, forgive us for not using prayer as the tool of war you made it for. Pray then like this. Our Father, hallowed be thy name. Make Your name great in my life. Make Your name great all over the world. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Not my will. Not what I want to happen. But what God wants to happen. God, I submit my life to You for this war so that Your kingdom would be full of people from every tribe and nation and language. And you see, the beauty of this tool... Oh, I love this. The beauty of this tool is that God is not just the Commander-in-Chief sitting back at Central Command, waiting for us and calling in the supplies that we need. But He, believe it or not, is the main fighter in this war. He's the main combatant in this war that we call missions. So this war is for his glory. We fight for his glory and he gives us everything. It gives him glory to give us everything we need to accomplish the mission and he also is there literally on the front lines fighting that war. In fact, we're really not on the front lines. Even Josiah who will be going to Nepal is not really on the front line if if you're if you're looking at it from God's point of view because God is already there. How do I know this? Well, I actually listened to Graham's messages through the book of Acts. I've actually taken notes. In the book of Acts, you don't have to turn here because I'm going to rapid fire here, but Acts chapter 11, verse 18 says this Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Who granted repentance that leads to life? God. Did Paul grant repentance that leads to life? No, God. Granted repentance that leads to life. Acts 15, 14 says, God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. Who first visited the Gentiles to take a people for his name? God did. Thank you for being here. (laughs) God did. Did Paul first visit the Gentiles to take a people for his name? No. God was there. Acts 16, 14 Then the Lord opened Lydia's heart to pay attention to what was being said by Paul. Terry, who opened Lydia's heart? God. God opened Lydia's heart. Did Paul? Could Paul ever open anyone's heart no matter where he went? Could he ever open the heart of a sinner? No. God was there already doing the work. That's exciting. That's why we can go. Because God's already there. Now God has given us more than just prayer as a tool, especially us here in America. So, I don't know what I'm doing with all these It's just what I'm doing. So God has given us another tool. It's called money. Money. Now money this is a little uh, FYI. Money is a tool. Money is a means to an end. Our culture has made it an end in itself, right? The bigger your bank account, the better person you must be. Right, The more fun you must have, the easier life must be. It's all a big lie. right? But money is a tool. <clears throat> and when it comes uh, to money, it's not just a tool, it's also a thermometer to measure our trust in God. That's tough. It's tough. This is it. Let me tell you, Graham asked me about six weeks ago to, to speak, and I have been challenged and convicted and uh, brought to tears a couple times because of how I live my life and how I see I should live my life. When it comes to money and giving and missions, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, if you want to turn there, because we're going we're gonna to read this passage and, uh, and we're going to break it down and then we're going to be just shocked by it. All right? So let's go ahead and read 2 Corinthians 8, <clears throat> 1 through 5. We want you to know, brothers <clears throat> and then by the will of God to us. You know, I've studied this passage before, but I'm just constantly shocked <clears throat> by it. Constantly. You see, if you remember when Graham shared, Paul was on his way to Jerusalem. And on his way, he passed through Macedonia. Well, I shouldn't say on his way. It's, on, it's out of his way, on his way. Out of his, the out of the way way to Jerusalem. If you remember the map that Graham used to put up there, you got all these cities and Jerusalem's like down here, down here, and he like goes all, where's he going, right? And so when he goes through Macedonia, something happens and now he's writing to the Corinthians and he's saying, hey, when I was going through Macedonia on my way to Jerusalem, this is what happened. And so he's encouraging the Corinthians, hey, be like this. And so there's a couple things I just want to point out. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God. You see, God is setting on this table, or He's setting up a table, and, and the table itself is like His grace. It's it, Everything that's going to happen, everything we're just going to talk about here in this little passage is all because of God's grace. It's all set up because of God's grace. God's doing the work. God is giving the gift. It's all about God. It's His grace. And so what we read about is because of God. So let's not, let's not just jump ahead and see what happened in the Macedonians lives, but let's see first that it's God's grace. Verse 2. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty has overflowed in a wealth of of generosity. Can we just should I read it slower? I mean you have this table of God's grace and on the table you have this severe test of affliction. Now, I just want you to notice something. The Macedonians had probably never heard of the name of Jesus before Paul came there. And so we don't know for sure, but we can we can kind of give a good a, a good hypothesis that when they came to Christ, when they heard the name and they put their faith in Christ, that possibly at that point a severe test of affliction came into their lives. And you know, we don't know for sure, but it's, it's, it's not out of the question. That because of their faith in Christ, they came into a severe test of affliction. So what does God not get rid of when we begin to follow Christ? What does He not get rid of in our lives? A severe test of affliction. Of affliction. Some of you know what I mean. And what does God also not get rid of in our lives when we come and and we follow Him and we put our faith in Him? Poverty. Or in this case, extreme poverty. It's interesting because there are some who would say that following Christ would get rid of those two things, it's not there. In fact, it's, it might be there because you follow Christ. You see, in our world, these things just don't go together. Easy life, happy life. Right? No bad things happen, you're happy. Bad things happen, you're sad. Okay, Money, happy. No money, sad. They, don't just, they just don't go together. But you see, on this table of God's grace... You have this severe affliction and you have this extreme poverty. But, and I love sandwiches. I really do. And my wife will tell you that my favorite sandwich is a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, but it's not. She's lying. Okay? I like meat on my sandwiches. And in the meat of this Macedonian problem is this abundance of joy. Where in the world does this come from? This abundance of joy in their lives Because it's all resting on God's grace. When our roots dig down into the grace of God, we can have, despite hardship, despite poverty, we can have not just joy, but the Bible says an abundance of joy. That's shocking to me. Because it doesn't make sense in my my brain. Now, Paul, just two chapters earlier, you don't have to turn here, but because Paul's life was rooted in the grace of God, he can say, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. Now notice that this joy is not simply for the Macedonians to get through this test of affliction and this extreme poverty. But it has produced in them a wealth of generosity. So much that it says they gave according to their means and beyond their means. Maybe we just need to go home and think about what that means. What would it mean for you and I to give beyond our means? Probably that is the biggest challenge to me in this whole passage. What does it mean for you and I to give beyond our means? I, I don't have any more observation than that. If you move on to verse uh, 5, I believe, it says, Begging us earnestly of the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. You see, the Macedonians had experienced God's grace in such a way that despite affliction and hardship, despite extreme poverty, that they had this abundance of joy that overflowed in generosity, but not just generosity, it overflowed with a passionate generosity. They were poor. And Paul knew that they were poor. But they didn't sit back and say, Well you know, we would be happy to give if Paul would just ask us. No, no, no. It says they begged earnestly. Please, Paul, we want to give. We want to give. We want to give. Despite their circumstances, they wanted to give. That's rare in our lives today. That there is a passion that they would beg earnestly to give to this cause I'm telling you, this passage is so challenging to me. You see, this is not a lesson on strategic giving. This is a lesson on how hot our hearts burn for God. That's what it's all about. Now, note takers. First point was knowing. Second point was praying. Third point was giving. And those are all well and good. Those, and they're really important. But man, we've got to talk about this fourth point. We're going to have to hit it. And it can get uncomfortable, as if the other one wasn't uncomfortable. We're going to have to talk about going. Now please, my heart is that you would not just chalk this message up to another missions message message that is for young people or single people or sending teams on short term trips please have your heart open to to the fact that God may call you to go please don't shut your heart to that please don't, I beg you don't do it you would be missing out on the greatest thrill of your life Now obviously when you hear the word missions, you have this this idea that you have to go somewhere. That missions doesn't just exist where you are right now. Yes, you have a mission if you're part of a family and you have kids at home. Yes, that's a mission field, sort of. But even that, even, even with your family, there needs to be some type of going. Your family, your kids especially need to see that there are people who don't know God, they don't worship him, and we are called to go to them and call them to worship God. So there's this going. And whenever you whenever God calls someone in the Bible, they almost always go somewhere. Think about Abraham. Think about Moses. I could go on and on. Think about Paul. Think about Jesus. Who left heaven for this this place called earth. When God calls people, they almost always go in the Bible. Please don't shut your heart off to that. In Romans 10, Paul has this, one of my favorite uh, passages on why and how the missionary should go. And how people get saved. Now, this passage doesn't need a lot of explaining. Um, it's, it's pretty clear. Uh, but there's, and there's this four rhetorical questions, right? He doesn't answer the question, but, but I'm going to answer them for us, just, just in case we miss it, all right? How, then, will they call on him in whom they have not believed? They can't. They can't. No one calls out to Jesus if they don't believe that he will save them. It's clear. And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? They can't. If they don't hear the Gospel, they are forever in their sins. If they don't hear the Gospel, they die in their sins. They're like sheep without a shepherd. Harassed and helpless. How are they to preach? Unless they are sent, they can't. You see, the good news of God's grace has been given to us as messengers that we would go and preach. You don't have to be a preacher behind a pulpit to do that, or a pulpit if you're from Texas, right? You don't have to be up on a stage to preach. But there are people that need to hear, and they will probably never come into a church. They need to hear the Gospel. And that is why there should be an urgency in our lives to share this good news. We should have the same heart that Paul had in the very first verse of this chapter. Brothers, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is this, that they may be saved. That's it. It's simple. My heart's desire and my prayer to God is that they would be saved. Do we have this same desire? Do we feel as Paul felt about those who have not heard the gospel? Note takers, knowing, praying, giving, going. I'm going to close with my last point dying. Dying. You know, it was the call of God. In Paul's life and his, his heart for people and for the mission of God that sent him into dangerous places for the glory of God. And we heard about it on Paul's way back to Jerusalem. If you've been with us going through the book of Acts, Paul knew what was going to happen to him in Jerusalem, and he still went. Some years ago, I had the opportunity to go and do an internship in northern Sudan for, uh, for about two months. And if you've ever heard Sudan, um, you know, you've probably heard of the killing. And the. I mean, literally millions of people have uh, either died or been misplaced from their homes and driven out as refugees in another place now. And, and it's all because of the fighting that's happened. There's a civil war that's been going on for years and decades And uh, prior to me going, uh, I was just a a college student. And, uh, you know, I I talked to my parents about it, and and they were behind me. (laughs) They were were all for me doing it. Thank God. I love my parents. And, uh, you know, every Sunday afternoon, uh, my grandmother would have, like, this huge, it was like Thanksgiving every Sunday when I was growing up. It was awesome. And uh, we would have the whole family over. There would be, like, 20, 30, I don't know how many, all my cousins, everybody was there. And I just told my parents this, and it wasn't long before everybody knew that I was going to Sudan. And one, one of my uh, older cousins, she came up to me and, and she said, uh, why are you going to Sudan? Like, it wasn't like, hey, why are you going to Sudan? Why are you going to Sudan? And I, I remember her words so clear. And she said, it's dangerous there. You could die. Now, I didn't say this, but I was probably thinking, I could have died in the shower this morning. Right? I could have died on my way to church this morning. I could fall down in front of you and die right now. Since when is safety a motivation for doing anything for God? We worship safety in America, don't we? We have insurance policies for everything. Since when is safety the reason for doing or not doing something for God? I can't find Scripture for that. But I'll tell you what I can find Scripture for. I can find a lot of Scripture to show us why we should spend our lives and our deaths for God's glory. And so let's just read one. Philippians chapter 1, verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for for me. Yet which shall I choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Man. What kind of closeness and fellowship must Paul have had with God that he could say to die is gain? What kind of a relationship must Paul have had with God that he could say that I would rather go? You see, when you're on your deathbed and you're about to breathe your last you're going to realize that everything you've ever worked for is going to be gone. All of your stuff will be gone. All of the people, all of your family will be gone. You will not have them. And yet, there's a grace from God that we can have in our lives that can say, though I lose everything, I gain. I gain because we gain Jesus. Would it be okay for you to die and go to heaven and have every toy you've ever wanted? and Have everything that you could possibly ever want and yet Jesus not be there? Would that be okay? You see, if we can dig our deep roots... And we can have a closeness with God. He can give to us the same heart that He gave to Paul and the same confidence that He gave to Paul and we could say that though I lose everything, I gain. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. My prayer for us today is that we would grow in that grace.